Welcome to A.T. Stewart and Sons Ministries. I'm your host, A.T. Stewart. I'm glad you've chosen to join us today as we look into the Word of God. So take your Bibles and let's hang out in God's Word for a few moments and see what God would say to us today. You know, there are a few things that God says are sin that we as Christians tend to ignore. It's like we're saying, God, surely that cannot be a sin. Surely, God, you must be kidding. That's just human nature, God. Well, we're going to study two of those things this morning. That we tend to think God's kidding when He says they're sinful. Our passage is Philippians chapter 2. Turn in your Bibles to Philippians 2. We'll be looking at verses 14 through 16. Now, if you have your pocket knife, why don't you go ahead and just take it out, and you may just want to go ahead and just cut out these verses, verse 14 and 15. Well, we might as well be honest, hadn't we? If we're going to ignore it and pretend it's not in the Bible, then we might as well just go ahead and take it out of our Bible. At least we'll be honest that way and not just think we're fooling God and fooling ourselves. Philippians 2, 14 through 16. God says, verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Well, verse 14 is the one that you might as well just go ahead and cut out of your Bible if you're going to ignore it. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Paul is dealing with church unity in Philippians chapter 2. And we have been studying this for some weeks now and I believe unless the Lord gives other direction, we'll be concluding this series uh, this morning, uh, at least for now. Uh, and we are looking at the path to unity, God's path. And we have seen seven steps, or we saw six steps, and we'll see the seventh step today to church unity. It began, as we saw in chapter 2, verse 2, when he says, be of the same mind. He meant that our thoughts were to be in agreement because we all have the mind of Christ. And the thoughts of God are seen in the Word of God. Therefore, as we all submit to the authority of God's Word, then we will have the same mind and we'll have unity, as you can see. Secondly, he said, maintain the same love. That is, our common love for God. Our common love for the unbeliever. Our common love for each other. Again, as we have the same love, it will bring unity. Thirdly, he said, unite in spirit. We saw this meant soul with soul, heart to heart, united in a desire to obey God's Word. Fourthly, he says, be intent on the same purpose. We're all reaching and striving toward a common goal and a common purpose. This will bring unity. We saw that goal to be to bring glory to God by being obedient to His Word in submission to proper authority. The fifth step was be humble-minded. That is, consider others as more important than ourselves. And this would bring unity. And then the sixth step, 
have the love of Christ toward each other. And what kind of love did Christ have? He had a self-emptying love. He had a self-denying love and a God-obeying love. Now we come to step number 7 this morning in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. First of all, today we're going to look at our mandate and then we shall look at our mission. First, our mandate. And it is a twofold mandate. A twofold command by God. This is not a suggestion by God. God is not saying, well, I think it would be good if. Or, let me make a suggestion to y'all folks down there. This is a command of God. It is a twofold command. First, He says, do all things without grumbling. Now, the word grumbling in the Greek is one of those onomatopoeia words. That's the word that sounds like what it is, like the buzz of a bee. Well, this Greek word is ganguzo. And that's kind of the idea of grumbling. It means to mutter. It means to murmur. It means to speak in low tones. It's to utter sullen discontent. It's used of the cooing of doves in the Greek language. That sound that doves make. It's kind of that murmuring sound that goes through a crowd when they're upset about something. I guess as I think of uh, uh, television programs when you'll see a courtroom scene and the uh, jury will come out and They'll either make a verdict that the crowd doesn't like or the judge will say something the crowd doesn't like and you hear everybody kind of rumbling through the crowd. That's what the grumbling is. Now basically, grumbling occurs when we're told to do something by someone in authority over us that we either don't want to do or we don't think is the right thing to do. And so what happens is we grumble. We mutter against them. We murmur against them in low tones behind their back. It could be a boss at work. It could be a parent. It could be a husband. It could be church leadership. It could be a coach of one of your kids' teams. He does something you don't think is right or he makes a decision you don't like and the temptation is to grumble. You see, grumbling is when we express resentment or dissatisfaction or anger or complaints in half-muttered tones. It's that fault-finding, critical spirit that goes within certain cliques in a church and they don't like what's going on. Grumbling is that quiet, behind-the-back undertone of murmuring against a person in authority. Rather than properly appealing to that person in authority, instead we behind-their-back grumble. But I want you to know God says this is sin. He says it's sin. He says we are to do all things without grumbling. He doesn't say most things. He doesn't say it would be great to do some things. He says do all things without grumbling. Now you may be saying, well preacher, I don't grumble. Man, I tell them right to their face if I don't like what they're doing. If I don't like what they're doing, I question them. I tell them I think they're wrong. I don't understand why they're doing it. They shouldn't be doing it. I let them have it. Well, the second command speaks to you. Do all things without disputing. And that word disputing means arguing. It carries arguments. It's that outward and vocal questioning that usually comes after the grumbling. We grumble for a while and then that erupts into outward vocal questioning of those in authority and arguing with them. Now, this does not uh, eliminate legitimate questions to an authority about what they have 
told you to do because you won't understand what they expect of you. doesn't uh, eliminate those questions. Nor does it eliminate you simply wanting to find out the fullness and why they would want you to do that so you can understand their heart and their motives. It doesn't eliminate that at all. But what it does eliminate, it eliminates that attitude, that disposition of arguing and complaining about almost every command that's given. Now, for some reason, it seems that teenagers particularly have a problem in this area, and preteens as well. It seems sometimes that everything you tell them to do, they want to argue about it. Parents, do you ever have that problem? All right, let me tell you what the right way uh, this thing can be done and it doesn't violate the Scripture. Say the parent says to the teenager, I do not want you to go to R-rated movies. And the teenager says, I gladly accept uh, what you say, Father, uh, but so that I might understand better, please explain to me why I shouldn't see R-rated movies. And then the parent, the father, begins to explain why it's, and gives good reasons uh, it contains things that's not suitable for, for your mind to be taken in. It's polluting your mind and all these kind of things. And the person understands. And that's the right way. Now, the wrong way is when the parent says to the teenager, I don't want you going to R-rated movies. And the teenager says, you don't ever let me do anything. What's wrong with R-rated movies? They won't hurt me. Everybody else goes to them. I've got to grow up sometime. You're just overprotective and you try to protect me too much. I've got to live out there in that world. Why can't I go? Well, now, that's a violation of the Scripture. That's disputing. That's arguing. Simply to say, I gladly accept what you say, but just so I'll better understand the reasons, please tell me why it's not good. Now, that's okay. And I think the parent, as well as the teenager, knows when that line has been crossed and the disputing and the arguing begins. And the same thing is true not only of, of teenagers, but adults as well. Anytime someone in authority over us Ask us or tells us to do something, whether it be a boss or whether it be uh, your husband or whether it be someone in church leadership. Again, it could be a situation where it's a coach on a, your kid's ball team. Anytime they want you to do something or tell you to do something or they make a decision you don't like, if you start arguing and complaining and grumbling, then you have gone into sin. Now, there are three applications that I want to make. More could be made. And the Holy Spirit may indeed make more to your heart this morning than what I'm making. He may have already made some good ones. But I want to give you three that I think He wants me to say. First one is this. Grumbling and disputing are not to be allowed in the church or in the home. They are not to be allowed. God says all things are to be done without grumbling and disputing. Therefore, if murmuring and disputing begins in a church between two people or two factions in that church, then the leadership needs to deal with that according to Christ's plan given in Matthew chapter 18, the part on church discipline. They need to get those parties together. If they can't work it out, they need to bring two or three more together. If they can't work it out, they need to take it to the church leadership. If it still can't be worked out, then they need to take it to the church and exercise church discipline. Because if disputing and grumbling and complaining is allowed to continue in a church, it will bring division, and it will bring disunity and turmoil within the church. Same thing is true in a home, parents. If you allow those teenagers to continue to grumble and to complain and to argue with you, it's just going to bring disunity and division in the home. It must be put 
to rest. Now the second principle in application. Grumblings and disputes are never of God. Never. They're never of God. If you're involved in complaining and grumbling and murmuring about something at your job or at home or at church, it's not of God. You're outside God's will and you are sinning. And no matter how much you think you know what God wants in that situation, if you're murmuring, if you're complaining, if you're griping, if you're disputing to those responsible, then you are not acting with God, but you're acting against God. Now there is a proper way to appeal to those in authority over us when they're making a decision that we think is wrong. But griping and complaining and grumbling is not the proper way. And any time we do that, we are not acting on God's side. We're acting against God. No matter how right what we may think is, if we're going about it that way, we're not on God's side, but we're acting against Him, and we're acting in sin. Third application. Grumbling and disputing are the very sins that brought God's judgment on Israel in the wilderness wandering. In 1 Corinthians 10.10, Paul warns the church at Corinth about grumbling. And he says, nor grumble as some of them did. And he's speaking of the Israelites in the Old Testament days. And were destroyed by the destroyer. And do you know how many of those Israelites were killed by God because they grumbled? Over 15,000. Now, I want us to look at that passage for a moment. So you hold your place in Philippians 2. We shall be back. And turn to Numbers chapter 16. Numbers 16 gives one of the instances in which Israel grumbled against God. Numbers 16. Now, this passage involves a man by the name of Korah and a few other men who were leading men in the nation of Israel. They were somebodies in the nation of Israel. They were Levites. They were not priests, but they were Levites. Therefore, they were in charge of the tabernacle, taking down the furnishings, keeping the furnishings straight and clean, moving the tabernacle when it was moved. And they were renowned men. They were leaders. But these men were not satisfied in their position. They wanted more. And therefore, they grumbled against Moses and they grumbled against Aaron. Look in verse 3 of number 16. And they assembled together against Moses and Aaron. It's about 250 of them. And said to them, You have gone far enough, for all the congregation are holy, every one of them. And the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now, had Moses and Aaron exalted themselves? No. God had placed them as the leaders of the people of Israel. But again, these leaders falsely accuse them and say that all of us are holy. We want to exercise the authority you are exercising. And look what Moses says to them in verse 11. He says, Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. Now wait a minute. Over in verse 3 it said they assembled together against Moses and Aaron. It didn't say anything about the Lord there. Well, why is it that Moses says they have assembled against the Lord? 
Because when you grumble against the authority that God's placed in your life, you're grumbling against God. Kids, when you grumble against your parents, you're grumbling against God. Wives, when you grumble against your husband, you're grumbling against God. Men, when you grumble against your boss, your supervisor, you're grumbling against God. Because God has placed that authority in your life. Verse 11 continues, But as for Aaron, who is he that you should grumble against him? They're grumbling against God's leaders. God says, that's grumbling against me. And God deals with it. Basically, Moses says, okay, you bring all the people out. You bring your 250 men along with their families, and you set them out. And then we'll see tomorrow who God has placed His leadership over this people. And he brings them out, and God says, man, tell everybody to get away from them. If you ever anywhere and God says, get away, you better stand back. God says, tell the people to move back. And Moses says, if God destroys these people in an unheard of way, then you'll know who God has placed as leader of this family, of this congregation, of this fellowship. And so, the people separate themselves from Korah and the other leaders and their families. And then God splits open the earth and they fall into the earth and are killed. And then he sends fire down to destroy the 250 that had gathered around to offer incense offerings. And God shows clearly his judgment against grumbling because it is ultimately against him. Now those Israelites must have been Baptists at heart because they were hard-headed. Because you know what they did after seeing that? They blamed Moses and Aaron for those people's deaths. They said, you have caused this to happen. Look at verse 41. But on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, saying, you're the ones who've caused the death of the Lord's people. It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. God came to the rescue as they were turning against His leadership. Then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of the meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. God said, Move back. I'm going to just destroy the whole lot. And then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces to intercede for the assembly. But not before, verse 49, 14,700 of them had died by the plague that God sent. Listen, people, God does not take grumbling lightly. He does not take disputing among His people lightly. The God who judged the nation of Israel is the same God today. And though in His grace He does not exercise that judgment upon us, He could rightly do so and be a just God. What we see in the Old Testament, we see the hand of God speaking forth in judgment on sins at times to show us His disposition on that sin. Like in Sodom and Gomorrah, God speaks His judgment on the sin of homosexuality in the situation of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. And because He doesn't send forth fire and brimstone in our day to punish that same sin, doesn't mean He takes it any more lightly. No, He takes it just as seriously. It's just a matter of His grace at operation rather than His judgment. And when He shows His severe disposition toward grumbling and complaining in this passage, 
Because He doesn't strike us dead when we grumble and we complain doesn't mean He takes it any less severely today, any less seriously. It's simply that His grace is an operation rather than His judgment. Well, how do you overcome grumbling and disputing? Back to Philippians chapter 2. I think it's a problem we all have to wrestle with. But Paul has already basically told us how to overcome grumbling and disputing. He's told us in verses 3 and 4. And that is, we are to be humble-minded. If we'll be humble-minded, we'll not grumble and we'll not dispute. The reason I say that is because we grumble and we argue for primarily two reasons. The first one is selfishness. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness. You see, we grumble, we complain, we dispute because the authority is not doing what we want Him to do. And because He's not doing what we want Him to do, in our selfishness, we complain and we grumble. Or He's asking us to do something we don't want to do. In our selfishness, we grumble and we complain. So first, don't act out of selfishness. The second thing is empty conceit. Thinking we know more than the authority knows. And Paul goes on to say in verse 3, do nothing out of empty conceit. You see, the more pride we have, the more we will grumble and complain and argue. We don't agree with what the authority is doing. We think we know better than they know. And so God's solution is for us to be humble-minded. Instead of being selfish, put others' interests above our own. As he says in verse 3. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. So when I in selfishness would be tempted to grumble and complain when the authority is doing something I don't want, I say, now wait a minute. I'm going to put their interest above my own. Lord, by your grace, I'm not going to grumble. I'm not going to complain. Whether it be at work, church, on the ball field, wherever. When I am tempted to grumble and complain because in pride, in conceit, I think I know more than the authority knows and I know what's best and they don't, I'll catch myself and say, wait a minute. I am to consider others as more important than I am. Therefore, I will not complain, I will not grumble, I will not argue. I will not think I know more than they know. By God's grace, I will consider them to be more important than I am. That's God's solution to the grumbling and the complaining. Consider others as more important than ourselves. Do nothing out of selfishness, but rather put their interest above our own. Well, now that we're following the mandate and not complaining and not arguing and not grumbling, not disputing, we're ready to fulfill the mission. Verses 15 and 16. He says that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. What is our mission? Spreading the good news. That's our mission. Our mandate is to live without complaining and grumbling. Our mission is to spread the good news. First, by practicing the good news. You see, we must never forget that our primary mission is to spread the gospel. We must first do so by living it every day. Some people you know at work, or maybe even in your home, will never open a Bible. They'll never read the Bible, but they're reading you every day. 
Therefore, we must live the gospel first. We must practice it. We must in our lives be a living demonstration of Christ our Redeemer, that He has redeemed us from the power of sin. In our lives, we should be an example, a living testimony of the good news of Jesus Christ, that God can save us from the power of sin. And we're to do so first in conduct. That is, we're to be blameless and above reproach. Verse 15. As we don't grumble, as we don't complain, we'll prove ourselves to be blameless and above reproach. We are to live and conduct ourselves in such a way that unbelievers have no reason to bring reproach against us. When we grumble, when we complain at work, when we complain uh, on the ball field and other places, it damages our witness. You and I need to ask ourselves, before we say something, how will this affect my witness? Folks, it's better to maintain a good witness than to be right. It's better to maintain a good witness than to be right. And we need to think, how will this affect my witness if I say this? For instance, you're in the checkout line and... uh, they have a sign up that says, anytime there are three in line, we'll open up a new line. And you're standing in line and there's six of them in front of you. And there's nobody opening up a new line. And you're in a hurry. Have you ever stood in a checkout line that you were not in a hurry to get out? You know, I started thinking about that this past week. I have never. I am always in a hurry to go somewhere else and get through this checkout line, right? Well, the six folks in front of you, there's no new cash registers being opened up. Big sign says whenever three in line, we're open one up. And inside of me, something starts boiling and saying, this isn't right. This isn't right. Just go over to that manager and let him have it. Say, look, if you're going to have a sign up, you need to do it. This is just dishonest and this is untruthful to have a sign that says you're going to do something and you don't do it. And then something says, yeah, you may be right, but what about your witness? I mean, you know, the very next Sunday, that guy would find his way into this church. And he'd be sitting right on that pew and he'd look up and say, don't I remember that guy? He was in my store last week carrying on like a maniac. And he's up there preaching. We've got to ask ourselves, how will this affect my witness? It's better to be a good witness than to be right. Or maybe you're in one of those express checkout lines and it says no more than 10 items. I've been in those. And the person in front of you has at least 15 items. And again, you're in a hurry, right? You wouldn't be in the express line if you were not. And something inside of you just starts kind of raging up. You know, the injustice of it all. And, and you just want to say something. But do you say something? You'd be right. I mean, they're violating the policy. But what would it do to your witness? We need to ask ourselves, how will this affect my witness? And then secondly, in character, not only in conduct, but in character, And the term innocent in verse 15 speaks to character. Blameless and innocent. That means unmixed. This word in the Greek was used of a metal that had no weakening alloy in it. But it was pure, pure gold, unmixed. That is, there has to be no mixture of evil in our lives at all. We are to be pure in heart and in mind and in soul. We must practice the good news. And then we are to radiate Christ through our lives. He says that we appear as lights in the world. 
We sung a few minutes ago, shine, Jesus, shine. Well, how do you think Jesus shines? He shines through us. That's how God shows forth His glory. It's through His redeemed people. And you and I must live in a way that shines forth the glory of God. We live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. A morally warped and twisted and perverted generation. You know it better than I do because you work with them every day. And I get kind of insulated from that kind of crowd. But you are working with them every day. You know how twisted they are morally. How they are in spiritual and moral darkness. And God says it is our blameless and holy living that will shine as stars in the darkness of these people. That by our righteous living, we are constantly proclaiming our Maker and our Redeemer. Therefore, it is important that we live the Gospel. And the next time you're about to grumble, you're about to complain, you're about to argue about something at work or someplace else, ask yourself, how will this affect my shining forth Jesus? How will it affect you? Will this damage my light? Say your secretary hasn't done something right, and you told her, and you kind of pushed to have it by a certain time and it's not done. Do you turn around and just give her down the country? Or do you in love deal with the situation? How is this going to affect my shining forth Jesus when he dies? You know, a man's secretary knows him probably next to his wife as well as anybody, right? If you want to find out about a preacher, check with his secretary. She can tell you about it. She knows. She sees him day in, day out. She sees if he gets irritated, if he complains, if he does this and does that. I mean, we can all put up a pretty good show for 45 minutes in front of a congregation, right? But how does he act every day? How does this affect my light shining? Now, some of you need to repair your light. This past week, or this past couple of weeks, you have done something that's damaged your life. You've acted in an unchristian, ungodly way towards someone. And the Holy Spirit has convicted you of that. Even as I've talked, you've grumbled, you've griped, you've disputed, you've complained. And you've damaged your life. And you need to go back and repair that damage. You need to go to that person and say, Look, when I did so-and-so the other day, or said so-and-so, or griped, or complained, or whatever you did, I was acting in an unchristian way, and I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. And I want to ask you to forgive me. And let, I want you to know this was not the way I should be acting. You need to repair that light because they are looking at us. They are looking to see how we live. And we must shine forth Jesus by practicing and living the good news. And then we must hold forth the good news by proclaiming. Verse 17. Excuse me, verse 16 says, Holding fast the good news of the word of life. A better translation of that is holding forth the word of life. It's not so much holding on to it, but holding it forth. Some of you saw that man toting that torch last night, right? Holding forth that light as he was running in the Olympics, ready to light the big torch. That's the picture. Holding forth the light of the good news of Christ proclaiming that Jesus indeed is the Redeemer. He is the one and only one. There is no other name given under heaven and earth whereby we must be saved but Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is none other. Yes, we must live it, but we must also proclaim it. 
when the opportunity opens itself up. We must know the good news and share that good news from a life that's living it, and that is a powerful witness. We need to be able to share with people that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Creator. That as the Lord and Creator, we owe Him our allegiance. And yet in our own way, we all have turned away from Him and like sheep have gone astray, each to his own path. And as we stand estranged from Him, we stand under His holy judgment and wrath. But yet He in His love came forth and lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we could not die and paid the price for the sins of His people. And He calls on us to come and repent, to turn away from that in our life which is displeasing to Him going our own way to turn away from that and come to Him and say, Jesus, I recognize You did die for me. I recognize You are the Lord of all and that I owe You my obedience and allegiance and therefore I surrender to You. I commit my will to Your will as my Lord and as my Savior. And I call upon You and ask You to save me. God, save me. Forgive me of my sins, Jesus. And I trust what You did to be enough for me to go to heaven. I know I cannot do anything to earn and deserve it. But you've done everything necessary and I trust in what you did. You see, we've come full circle. We saw the first Sunday in John 17. Jesus prayed, Father, may they be perfected in unity that the world might know that you sent me. Jesus said, through the unity of the church, the world will know that Jesus is the Savior, the Christ. Paul comes through this section on unity and he ends up with the people of God shining forth the truth of God in their everyday lives as we live in unity and in oneness. Shine forth, Lord Jesus. Shine forth. Let's pray. Father, I pray that Your Spirit would take this message and press it home to each of our lives. That we would see how You see grumbling and complaining and disputing. That by Your grace we would commit this day to walk before You without disputing and grumbling and complaining. You might be magnified and lifted up in this body, in our lives. We might shine forth Jesus into a dark and twisted and perverted world. It's in His name I pray. Amen.